Chapter Eight of Where No Fear Was, a book about fear. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Where No Fear Was, a book about fear, by author Christopher Benson. Chapter Eight, Fears of Youth. The fears of youth are, as a rule just the terrors of self-consciousness and shyness. They are a very irrational thing, something purely instinctive and of old inheritance. How irrational they are is best proved by the fact that shyness is caused mostly by the presence of strangers. There are many young people who are bashful, awkward, and tongue-tied in the presence of strangers whose tremors wholly disappear in the family circle. If these were rational fears, they might be caused by the consciousness of the inspection and possible disapproval of those among whom one lives, and whose annoyance and criticism might have unpleasant practical effects. Yet they are caused often by the presence of those whose disapproval is not of the smallest consequence, those, in fact, whom one is not likely to see again. One must look, then, for the cause of this, not in the fact that one's awkwardness and inefficiency is likely to be blamed by those of one's own circle, but simply in the terror of the unknown and the unfamiliar. It is probably, therefore, an old inherited instinct coming from a time when the sight of a stranger might contain in it a menace of some hostile usage. If one questions a shy boy or girl as to what it is they are afraid of in the presence of strangers, they are quite unable to answer. They are not afraid of anything that will be said or done, and yet they will have become intensely conscious of their own appearance and movements and dress, and will be quite unable to command themselves. That it is a thing which can be easily cured is obvious from the fact which I often observed when I was a schoolmaster, that, as a rule, the boys who came from houses where there was much entertaining and a constant coming and going of guests very rarely suffered from such shyness. They had got used to the fact that strangers could be dependent upon to be kind and friendly, and instead of looking upon a new person as a possible foe, they regard him as a probable friend. I often think that parents do not take enough trouble in this respect to make children used to strangers. What often happens is that parents are themselves shy and embarrassed in the presence of strangers, and when they notice that their children suffer from the same awkwardness, they criticize them afterwards, partly because they are vexed at their own clumsy performance, and thus the shyness is increased, because the child, in addition to his sense of shyness before strangers, has in the background of his mind that feeling that any mauvais sang that he may display may be commented upon afterwards. No exhibition of shyness on the part of a boy or girl should ever be adverted upon by parents. They should take for granted that no one is ever willingly shy, 
and that it is a misery which all would avoid if they could. It is even better to allow children considerable freedom of speech with strangers than to repress and silence them. Of course, impertinence and unpleasant comments, such as children will sometimes make, on the appearance or manners of strangers, must be checked. But it should be on the grounds of the unpleasantness of such remarks and not on the ground of forwardness. On the other hand, all attempts on the part of a child to be friendly and courteous to strangers should be noted and praised. A child should be encouraged to look upon itself as an integral part of a circle, not as a silent and lumpish auditor. Probably, too, there are certain physical and psychological laws which we do not at all understand which account for the curious subjective effects which certain people have at close quarters. There is something hypnotic and mesmeric about the glance of certain eyes, and there is in all probability a curious blending of mental currents in an assembly of people which is not a mere fancy but a very real physical fact. Personalities radiate very real and unmistakable influences, and probably the undercurrent of thought, which happens to be in one's mind, when one is with others, has an effect, even if one says or does nothing to indicate one's preoccupation. A certain amount of this comes from an unconscious inference on the part of the recipients. We often augur without any very definite rational process, from the facial expressions, gestures, movements, tones of others, what their frame of mind is. But I believe that there is a great deal more than that. We must all know that when we are with friends, to whose moods and emotions we are attuned, there takes place a singular degree of thought transference, quite apart from speech I once had a great friend with whom I was accustomed to spend much time tete-a-tete. -tete. We used to travel together and spend long periods day after day in close conjunction, often indeed sharing the same bedroom. It became a matter at first of amusement and interest, but afterwards an accepted fact, that we could often realize, even after a long silence, in what direction the other's thought was traveling. How did you guess I was thinking of that? would be asked, to which the reply was, I did not guess, I knew. On the other hand, I have an old and familiar friend, whom I know well, and regard with great affection, but whose presence, and particularly a certain fixity of glance, often, even now, causes me a curious subjective disturbance, which is not wholly pleasant, a sense of some odd physical control which is not entirely agreeable. I have another friend who is the most delightful and easy company in the world, when we are alone together. But he is a sensitive and highly strung creature, much affected by personal influences, and when I meet him in the company of other people, he is often almost unrecognizable. His mind becomes critical, combative, acrid. He does not say what he means. He is touched 
by a vague excitement, and there passes over him an unnatural sort of brilliance, of a hard and futile kind, which makes him sacrifice consideration and friendliness to the instinctive desire to produce an effect and to score a point. I sometimes actually detest him when he is one of a circle. I feel inclined to say to him, if only you could let your real self appear and drop this tiresome posturing and fencing, you would be as delightful as you are to me when I am alone with you. But this hectic tittering and feverish jocosity is not only not your real self, but it gives others an impression of a totally unreal and not very agreeable person. But, alas, this is just the sort of thing one cannot say to a friend. As one goes on in life, this terrible and disconcerting shyness of youth disappears. We begin to realize, with a wholesome loss of vanity and conceit, how very little people care, or even notice how we are dressed, how we look, what we say. We learn that other people are as much preoccupied with their thoughts and fancies and reflections as we are with our own. We realize that if we are anxious to produce an agreeable impression, we do so far more by being interested and sympathetic than by attempting a brilliance which we cannot command. We perceive that other people are not particularly interested in our crude views, nor very grateful for the expression of them. We acquire the power of combination and cooperation in losing the desire for splendor and domination. We see that people value ease and security more than they admire originality and fantastic contradiction. And so we come to the blessed time when, instead of reflecting after a social occasion whether we did ourselves justice, we begin to consider rather the impression we have formed of other personalities. I believe that we ought to have recourse to very homely remedies, indeed, for combating shyness. It is of no use to try to console and distract ourselves with lofty thoughts and to try to keep eternity and the hopes of man in mind. We so become only more self-conscious and superior than ever. The fact remains that the shyness of youth causes agonies both of anticipation and retrospect. If one really wishes to get rid of it, the only way is to determine to get used somehow to society and not to endeavor to avoid it, and as a practical rule to make up one's mind, if possible, to ask people questions rather than to mediate impressive answers. Asking other people questions about things to which they are likely to know the answers is one of the shortest cuts to popularity and esteem. It is wonderful to reflect how much distress personal bashfulness causes people, how much they would give to be rid of it, and yet how very little trouble they ever take to acquiring any method of dealing with the difficulty. I see a good deal of undergraduates, and am often aware that they are friendly and responsive, 
but without any power of giving expression to it. I sometimes see them suffering acutely from shyness before my eyes. But a young man who can bring himself to ask a perfectly simple question about some small matter of common interest is comparatively rare. And yet, it is generally the simplest way out of the difficulty. End of section 8